Thanks, guys. Hey, open up your Bibles uh, to Matthew 28 from verse 16. Very famous passage known as the Great Commission. Now, if you're new or visiting, we've been going through this series we've titled Bold, and it's only been five weeks uh, where we've looked at some truths that should radically change us and make us bold in our living and speaking for Jesus. And today is the last one before we then start in the book of Ecclesiastes next week. So Matthew 28 from verse 16, and I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it'll just be on the screen. Let's read from verse 16, only these five verses. Matthew 28 verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this is a great command, the great commission given to not-so-great people, and, and we're included in that bunch, I reckon, even if I just speak for myself. Your disciples who come to you, even after you have risen from the dead, worship you, and yet they have doubts. And so it's very comforting to know that you give this great command to people who are not perfect. And so help us to see what it is that's meant to give us courage and boldness and strength to do the things that we feel often so ill-equipped to do in all of our doubts and our struggles in following you. Be with us now, Lord. May you be glorified and may you show us what is good for us and our community and our world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Now, earlier this year, my parents were sitting in a heart specialist's office. Dad had been complaining about these pains in his chest uh, for a number of weeks. I I think he was saying they got so bad that he ended up on the floor just rolling around, and it was quite serious, and, and they thought they were just side effects from some medicine that he was taking at the time because they, they, he got a chest infection. And I said to him, look, this sounds a bit serious. Why don't you go see someone? Go see a specialist. And as soon as Dad told the specialist about the type of pain that he'd been experiencing, and especially even as he would be sitting down, not even um, doing anything, he got sent off for scans straight away, right there, and then go and get the scans, come back, straight away. And within hours, they were back in his office and he told them that dad needs to go to the hospital right away. They left, they left his office, not even quite sure what's going on. They didn't give them too much detail at the beginning. And before they'd even gotten to their car, the hospital called them and said, we're ready for you. Come on in. So they went in and, um, and they, they, they did an operation on him that very day. They put a stent in his heart and um, one, of his, one of the main arteries that was going into his heart. And it was only afterwards that the, that the specialist told him, hey, like one of the main arteries going into your heart was 99% blocked 
and you could have dropped dead any second. And it's amazing that he didn't for all those weeks that he had those pain. And so they didn't explain all of that to him beforehand because it was imperative that he get to the hospital and have surgery ASAP. It was a matter of life and death. It really was. And today's sermon is titled, The Great Imperative. Now, to say something is imperative is to say that something is of greatest importance. It's, it's paramount. It's something that requires some duty that's essential and urgent, like dad's surgery. And you can actually show this grammatically by stating something in what they call the imperative mood. Now, I'm no expert in this, but um, the words make disciples in verse 19 is one word in the original language, which I did study a little bit, and it's in the imperative mood. And what Jesus is doing in doing that is showing that making disciples is paramount for his people, for his church. Making disciples should be of greatest importance to his church. And being a disciple and making disciples is essential to every Christian and should be done with great urgency. But it's not just the fact that Jesus said this in the imperative mood that makes it the great imperative. If we truly believe the first four talks that we've done in this series, this will become a natural imperative for us to make disciples of all nations. Think back with me. So if there really is a place called heaven and hell, and they really exist, as we saw in our first talk, and as we saw in our second talk, if God's default posture to a world that hates him and is, and is against him is to love them and not judge them and forsake them, wow, that's good. And if through the work of Jesus, his work on the cross, uh, God has done everything to make his enemies his friends, to make his foes family, as we saw in our third talk. And if Jesus will unite all those united to him by faith, one day at the end of the age, with all other things in heaven and on earth together to start a new world and a new life as we know it, well, the great imperative is to make disciples of all nations. That's the only way people can enjoy all the blessings that God has in store for them, both now and in all of its fullness forever. And so, let's look at this great imperative of making disciples. We've got three things. The first is the simplest, and even it's the longest actually. Make disciples of all nations as you go. Now, when we read through the Bible, especially the Gospels, we see uh, the word disciple pop up all the time. And even this week as I sat down, I thought, I know what a disciple is. Yeah, what's a disciple? And I even asked Katie this when she walked into my office. And you're just kind of dumbstruck a bit at first. You're like, you, you, your brain's saying, I should know this, but I'm, I'm struggling to get something out. And so we can easily think we know what it means without knowing what it means. And so if we're going to make disciples, we need to know what is a disciple so that we know how to make one. So what is a disciple? Well, the word at its most basic just means a follower. So a disciple is someone who follows another person, their their thinking and their way of life. And so the disciple then submits themselves to that person's discipline, which is part of how the word disciple works together, uh, or their teaching. um, So that person, uh, the leader that they're following, they're teaching 
and so on. They submit to that. Now, this was a common thing. You remember John the Baptist had disciples, and he taught them how to pray and how to fast. But Jesus, I think, changes the idea of disciple, as he does often with most things. Not that he makes it less than what it is, but he makes it more than what it is, and he makes it richer. And so let me give you... So what does a disciple look like, uh, a disciple of Jesus look like? I'm going to give you 10 <laughs> quick points, okay, uh, as, as, that I came up with as I read through the gospel. Okay, it's going to be quick, don't stress, you'll be home for lunch. Um, but, so here's the first one, okay? I'm just going to run through them. This is not meant to be an explanation. They're meant to, for you to go, oh yes, now I remember that. And we'll go from there, okay? The first thing, a disciple of Jesus is called by him. All Jesus' disciples were called by him. Remember, come, follow me, he would say. No one can be a disciple of Jesus unless he or she is called by Jesus himself. And he still does it today. Number two, a disciple of Jesus follows him. So Jesus' disciples ends up listening to the call, right? And they follow him. They gave up everything to follow him. And he was their primary teacher as they follow him and be his disciples. I'm not going to keep saying disciple of Jesus. Okay, All of this is disciple of Jesus. I'm just going to say disciple. Number three, a disciple is loved by Jesus. When you read John's gospel and he mentions himself, you know, as he talks about Jesus' life and his ministry, it's interesting when he talks about himself, he doesn't say John. He doesn't put his name in there. He says the disciple whom Jesus loved. I just think it's a great line. That is how disciples of Jesus see themselves, as dearly loved by Jesus. It's their primary identity. So that's number three. Number four, a disciple loves Jesus. They're loved by Jesus. They love Jesus. Do you remember after Jesus' resurrection, uh, Jesus goes and he's, he meets some of his, his disciples who decided to go fishing for the night on the beach. And as they come in, he shares a meal with them, and um, he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? I mean, think of all of the things he could have asked Peter to try and undo those three times that Peter denied him. He could have said, Peter, do you now accept me? Peter, do you believe in me? Peter, you know how you were kicking against me when I said I had to die? Do you now see why I had to die, Peter? No, he says, he asks, do you love me? Because disciples of Jesus loves him because they are loved by him. That's number four. Number five, a disciple loves Jesus' church or his people. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, verse 35. I'll quote it to you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. True disciples of Jesus loves his church and, and they sacrifice themselves and serve the church in the same way that Jesus did. Number six. I'm going to start using two hands now. A disciple listens to Jesus. I love how Brenton was saying earlier, we're just going to do this because Jesus tells us to do it. We're just going to listen and we're going to obey. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8.31. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The way you know if someone's truly a follower of Jesus is to open the Bible with them. If they listen, if they absorb and take it in and their life is transformed by it, well, then they're a disciple. 
If they don't, they're not a disciple of Jesus. Number seven, a disciple lives for Jesus and dies to themselves. Jesus says famously in all of the gospel, this one comes up, I think, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, so die to himself daily and follow me. And he also says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you don't do that, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. So a disciple of Jesus considers themselves crucified with Jesus on the cross, resurrected and risen with him and living a new life. They live a new life to him and they no longer live selfishly to themselves and following their own desires. Number eight, we're almost to ten, okay? A disciple lives like Jesus. This is how Jesus put it in John 15, verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, a follower of Jesus is someone who has connected themselves with Jesus through faith, with Him who is the true vine, and the very life that runs through Jesus, runs through His people who are connected to Him, the branches, if you like, and they bear fruit, the same fruit that uh, Jesus Himself bore. So they live like Jesus. Number nine, Jesus' disciples are not greater than Him. Jesus said this clearly in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now what Jesus is saying is if people hated me, they're also going to hate you. If people listen to me, they, they, may, they may listen to you. If people thought that Jesus was crazy, they're probably going to think you're crazy. Don't think that you can be a disciple of Jesus and do life better than him so that you're more popular than him and more widely accepted. You're not greater than Jesus. Last one, number 10. We made it. What's the time? Wow. Um, we, we, disciples of Jesus makes, they make more disciples. That's the main point of our passage. Followers of Jesus are disciple makers. No Christian in their right mind think to themselves, being a follower of Jesus is the best thing on the planet. It's the best thing in the world. But the world doesn't need to experience it. <laughs> that, that just doesn't make sense. No. Just like we naturally tell others about things we enjoy and that we love so that they might share in those things, so we naturally try to make more disciples of Jesus so they might enjoy all the goodness and the love and the joy and the life that we've experienced in Jesus. Okay? So those are the 10 points. Now you have a bit of an idea of what a disciple is. Now, look, it's not complete. I'm not going to write a book about it. It can certainly be fleshed out, but we don't have time for that. What I've done is I've painted a picture of what a disciple is according to the Gospels. You can go read the rest of the New Testament and flesh that out and clarify it and, and probably put a bunch more things on it. But the reason I wanted to do this is so that we can know what to do when Jesus says, he gives us the imperative to make disciples. In short, Jesus puts it in two actions. Did you notice that? Baptizing and teaching. That is how we make disciples. 
So why do we, why do we baptize Jesus' new disciples? Well, it's because they are the ones, see if you can pick up some of the points as I'm telling this, uh, they are the ones who have seen the love Jesus has for them through his work on the cross, and they've trusted in them as their saviour. And in their baptism, they show visibly how they have died with Jesus as they are dunked into the water, and also how they have been risen to a new resurrection life through Jesus' resurrection as they pulled out of the water. And as is the case with baptisms, new disciples proclaim the grace that they've experienced and how they've been called to belong to Jesus. That's all part of being a disciple. Not to mention that getting baptized is itself an act of obedience, observing the very command that Jesus gives us here in verses 19 to 20 of our passage. So we can see in baptism alone more than half of those points that I just rattled off to you earlier. Now the second thing we do in making disciples of all nations is found in verse 20. Have a look there. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now notice quickly what a verse does not say. What does the verse not say? It does not say, teach them all that I have commanded you. Disciple making is not about having people's heads full of truth. Even good biblical truth, okay? No, Jesus says, teach them to observe what all that I have commanded you. Discipleship is about showing people how to live out the truths of what Jesus says. Discipleship should result in changed lives, not just changed beliefs. Changed beliefs that results in changed lives. Discipleship should result in humble obedience and not arrogant judgment and condemnation of others. Discipleship should result in depending on Jesus more as you keep going through life and not less. Now, with all of this in mind, hopefully it's still in there, with all of this in mind, I want to ask you this, just flat out, are you a disciple of Jesus? Don't just quickly say, oh yeah, like in line with those things I've just shared with you, are you a disciple of Jesus? And if you are, are you actually a disciple maker? Are you a disciple maker? If you're a leader in our church, um, you know, over a growth group maybe, or a a ministry area, um, I want you to go home, or maybe you could do it now, but it's probably not the best time. Go home and ask yourself, is what you're doing producing disciples? Or even better, is what you're doing producing disciples who live to make more disciples? You see, we are called to make disciples of all nations, as it says there in verse 19. And the word translated nations there is where we get our word ethnic from. So this means we are to make disciples of all ethnicities, of all people. Even if the good news of Jesus has reached the nation of Australia... Uh, We continue to make disciples because lots of people have not even heard of Jesus, let alone put their trust in him. Now, you might be thinking, Darnie, Darnie, hold on, what's... No, no, you're talking about evangelism now, Darnie. I thought you were talking about discipleship. But notice how Jesus doesn't say, go and evangelize people. 
And then once they believe, then you put them in some sort of discipleship program and then we disciple them. No, it's one thing. Going to people who are not disciples, trying to make them disciples of Jesus is discipleship. And so we need to disciple everyone, whether they believe or not. And I wonder if we do that, if we will actually stop doing this thing um, where sometimes we think the gospel is for some people in our church, but not for others. If we actually see everyone as needing discipleship, then everyone needs the gospel. And lastly, as a kind of application of this point, I want you to notice how this is the great imperative for all of Jesus' followers, not just some. We often think it's those who go to Africa or to Asia who are fulfilling this great commission. You know, oh, well, it makes sense, Dan. You know, like Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so it's for those people who go somewhere, go to other nations. But it's, it's, not, it's not got that idea at all. It's more the idea that you make disciples as you go. Or you can say, well, in your going, make disciples. Or as you have gone already, wherever you are, make disciples. We see this in Matthew 10. Remember the first time Jesus sends out a bunch of his disciples? It was almost like a mini version of what we've got here. And this is what he says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, this makes discipleship an everyday lifestyle for every Christian. It stops us from thinking that missionaries over there go and they disciple people. Or it stops us from thinking, I go to church to disciple people or to get discipled. All those things are true, but you can also disciple your kids, for example, when you go to the shops, when you take them to the park. This means we we don't only disciple people when we open up our Bibles and sit down and do a one-to-one or a growth group, even though that is great, you keep doing this. We can also do it in more informal settings. And people often take one of those two things and say that's discipleship, either the really informal bit and saying, well, just follow me, and you know, it's very vague. Or they go like, we need to open up the Bible. Anytime you meet with me, we need to open up the Bible. But it's it's both those things are considered discipleship. So, church, let's be known as a people that make disciples wherever we go. It's imperative that we do that. This is the great essential, urgent thing that Jesus gives the church. Now, how are you feeling? Um, When I was going through this, I don't know about you, but it didn't make me very bold. You know, maybe you're thinking, Donnie, I don't know what the series is about, but I, I don't see the dots. They don't connect for me. This is not making me very bold. And if that's you, you're in the same boat as me. It kind of does the opposite of what we're trying to do through our series. It's a great task that should always be done by every Christian and result in a radical commitment and change in the people that we're doing it with. Wow, it overwhelms me. Does it overwhelm you? Well, I want you to take comfort in the next two points. And it's the bookends of our passage that should make us bold. Okay, the first one is this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given 
to Jesus. Jesus gives us the imperative to go make disciples of all nations, but it derives from the fact that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. You see, Jesus will not send us anywhere or to anyone or into any situation where he doesn't have full authority. Look, have a look there at verse 18. Look how dependent our task is to his total authority. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because of what I've just told you, and make disciples of all nations. You know, people probably drive past our church uh, on Sundays and maybe during the week as well, and they think to themselves... (laughs) The church, you know how they used to have authority in our society, but but we're past that now. You know, we're too smart, we're too advanced. Um, you know, we, we don't have time for their kind of old and outdated and un- unscientific methods. And, and you know, kids, kids, maybe they're talking about kids as well. You know, it's not going to be long before the church will just have absolutely no authority in our society, no influence, and just no longer even exist. You know, I reckon a lot of Aussies think that way. And that's fine. The question is, is that what we've started believing? Is that what you have started believing? Have we started believing that Jesus has no authority in my school, on my uni campus, at my workplace, even in my own home, in my suburb? Now, despite what our world believes and what you might be feeling Here's the truth from Ephesians chapter 1. This is talking about the great might that God had worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things, to BHP, to Woodside, to the church. Friends, the most powerful person in the universe is on the side of the church. The most powerful man in all existence is for the church. He's for you and he's for me. Let that sink in. And not just in your head, Let's sink into your heart. We've got Jesus and ain't nobody above him. Everyone and everything is under his authority. So where are you going this week? On the bus and the train? He's got authority there. To your local sports club? Everyone there is under Jesus' authority. Maybe you're working with that a very anti-Christian and outspoken atheist, Jesus sits on his throne and he laughs at them who are trying to dethrone him in various ways. We see that from Psalm 2 verse 4. Or maybe you're going to a meeting with your big boss. Jesus is the boss of your boss, man. Even if someone has authority over you, that authority has been given to them by Jesus. That's what Jesus says to Pilate, remember, when he, when he was interrogated by him. And uh, Pilate says to him at one point, hey, you know, start answering me. I've got authority to kill you. And Jesus says, you will have no authority over me 
if it wasn't given to you by my Father who is in heaven. It's the same with us. So you'll never be in a situation or a conversation where Jesus is not in total control. You're safe in his hands and in his plans. Now maybe you're not going anywhere, actually. Maybe you're just going backwards and forwards in your house. (laughs) Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and it just feels at times that you're stuck at home for weeks with everyone being sick and you know, the kids are just getting worse and worse and worse. And let's be honest as well, we get worse and worse and worse. Maybe that's you. You know, does Jesus even have authority over these little kids? They seem so feral sometimes, you know? Does he have, does he have authority over their selfish, self-determined and strong-willed hearts? Of course he does. There's no heart uh, that's out of Jesus' reach. There's no scenario that Jesus isn't sovereign over. There's no one too far gone for Jesus. If you're in a retirement home, don't listen to people. You know, have you you had this time where you try and tell someone about Jesus and they have this line where they say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Don't listen to them. Jesus rose people from the dead. He can change person with a beating heart. Dear disciple of Jesus, He's telling you about his all-encompassing authority so you can go with all boldness to go and make disciples. Wherever your foot treads is within Jesus' authority. So take heart and be a disciple maker. Okay, that's the second one. The last one is this. Jesus is with you always. To the end of the age. Have a look at that promise there of Jesus at the end of verse 20. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now tell me those are not the sweetest five words to you. I am with you always. For those who are out to make disciples, they can say with complete and utter confidence, Jesus is always with me. No matter how scared you are, no matter how ill-equipped you feel or how impossible the task might seem, Jesus is with you. Uh, Do you remember, I've been reading through the book of Exodus, do you remember, and this is in God's providence I feel, do you remember how God appeared to Moses in the burning bush? And he was was only 80 years old, you know, And God essentially asked Moses to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the planet, and to ask him the most impossible task. Pharaoh, um, my God just appeared to me in a burning bush, uh, you know, as I was looking after my sheep, and he told me to come and tell you to let your whole workforce go so that they can go and worship him. You know, you know those people, the Israelites that you've got, that's your free slaves, doesn't cost you anything, and they bring you in lots of things? Yeah, yeah it's simple. If you just let them go, please. <laughs> I mean, what was Pharaoh thinking? It's, it's, um, it's Moses going to the most powerful man with the most impossible task. And something that dawned on me this week is that he's a shepherd. And do you know what it says of shepherds in Genesis 46? It says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So it's like everything is stacked against Moses. Everything. No wonder he says, who am I to do this? He says it to God. And what does God say? 
He says this in Exodus 3, but I will be with you. It's that simple. He doesn't say, Moses, you know, remember what a beautiful baby you were. Your mom just thought so much of you, she couldn't throw you in the river. Oh, you're so good looking. And you've only aged well, Moses. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to Moses, Moses, gee, it's like you were educated in Pharaoh's house. You speak their language. You know their style. Oh, you're the perfect man for the job, Moses. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to Moses, Moses, you have been shepherding sheep for 40 years. Oh, it's the perfect preparation for taking my stubborn people and shepherding them through the wilderness. You're the man, Moses. No, God doesn't say any of those things because you know what? Then Moses would look at himself. God says to him, I will be with you. And Jesus says to us today, I am with you always. Why does he tell us this? So that we can lift our eyes from our own fears, from our own failings, from our own weaknesses. So we can look up from uh, our feeling of incompetence and uh, insufficiency. So we can even look higher than looking into our powerful boss. So that we can look even higher than, than that intellectual workmate who you're trying to reason with as an ordinary bogan like me. So that you can look even higher beyond all the obstacles and the dangers and, and the cost of discipleship making. And you can look up to God, the, the risen and reigning Lord Jesus. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's got your hand. That's the one he wants you to look at. Look up, dear Christian. I remember the first time we we went to the beach with all of our kids. If you're a parent, maybe you can relate to this. You know, you pick this beautiful sunny day and um, you take them to what you think is going to be a great experience. And then you get there, you get to the beach and you put them down and they walk and then they see the waves. It's like... And they hear the sound of the foaming water and they turn around and they bawl their eyes out and they bolt for the car. <laughs> you run after them, you pick them up, you say, it's going to be okay, you calm them down. You say, I'm with you, it's okay. And, and then they're happy to approach the water a bit again. And then when you get to the water, you can even put them down as long as you hold on to their hand and they cling to your hand with all of their life. And then they happily go into the water They'll put their feet in the water. And I can imagine what their little minds must be going through as the water starts moving the sand. You know that feeling? And it feels like the earth is swallowing you. They don't care. They're holding on to mommy or daddy's hand. You're with them. They're happy as. They're safe as houses. Now that is what Jesus does for us when he sends us out to make disciples of all nations. He says, I'm with you. I'll hold your hand even if things get shaky. Even if you feel like everything's going to fall apart. I'm with you. But Jesus does it even more. He goes before us to prepare good works for us, to walk in, to live out our faith, and then to share our faith. He He works inside of us so that we might actually live up to the very message that we're sharing with others. And also, he says to us, when we're interrogated by people for what we believe, to share the hope that we have in Jesus, he says, don't stress. I'll give you the words to speak in a moment. 
Think for a minute of everything that God did in saving his people through the man Moses. Jesus is far greater than Moses. The climax of Moses' work was when God came down. Remember right at the end of the book of Exodus? When, when God came down in his presence and he went into the tabernacle, into the tent. And it was the highlight of the book. Oh, finally God is dwelling with us, with his people. Now Jesus came down and he dwells within his disciples. Not in a tent. By his spirit he dwells within us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He will be with us all the time until the end of all things. And how should this make us feel? Well, hopefully bold. But look what God thinks it should do to us. Have a look here at Joshua. It's a famous passage. Joshua 1, verse 5 to 6. God says there, Joshua heads into the promised land and they've got these big people in the land. He says, I will not leave you or forsake you again. He's saying, I'll be with you. And then he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. With Jesus with us, not leaving us, not forsaking us, we should be strong and courageous in making disciples of all nations. Not because we're strong and courageous. Otherwise, God wouldn't have to tell us to be strong and courageous. But because He is strong and courageous. Let me finish like this. Think back with me to my dad's heart operation. It was imperative that it got done that day. It was a matter of life or death. And you know what, it's, there's, a, there's an even greater imperative, and that is that God does heart surgery on all people so they can be made new, so they can be part of the new heavens and the new earth and enjoy everything good that's coming as Jesus returns. This is a matter of eternal life and of eternal death. And he does this heart surgery when we make disciples of Jesus. It's the great imperative. Make disciples of all nations. But the good thing is we're not going out alone. The all-powerful and all-conquering Jesus is with us. So let's be bold. Let's be courageous. Let's be strong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for sharing with us this great imperative but also not just sharing it, but sharing us in some sense your very self. Wonderful truths about your authority and your power and a promise that you will be with us always as we go out and make disciples. May we, as we go out and, and, and do this, which is a costly thing, it's often a scary thing, may you be with us and show us uh, your power and your love for us and pour out your grace upon us. And Lord, I really do want to pray for our church that we would be known as a church that makes disciples, that um, we would continue to see people being baptized in this church as a result of that and, and proclaim your wonderful excellencies and that people would love to gather with us as we, as we journey together with you by our side and becoming more like you and reaching the lost around us. Please help us in this, Lord. And may this talk and, and as we submit ourselves to this and obedience and faith have a great ripple effect all the way into eternity as we uh, make disciples of all nations, as you call people and show out their love for them and um, change them radically, Lord. 
May we stand next to someone in heaven one day that was discipled through this group of churches or this group of Christians. So be with us, we pray. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory and our good. Amen.